Shrinkwrap Radio number 835, Existential Humanistic Psychologist Kirk Schneider, Ph.D., on Life-Enhancing Anxiety. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Kirk Schneider, Ph.D., a licensed psychologist, leading spokesperson for contemporary existential humanistic psychology, will be discussing his latest book, Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane Life. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Kirk Schneider, welcome back to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you very much. Yeah, Dr. I say David. welcome back because... Uh, a few years ago, uh, we spoke ab about your reflections on the pandemic, and I should also mention that we're old friends, but we haven't yes. seen each other in recent years. Yes, uh, unfortunately, this is the way that <laughs> we have been <laughs> connecting, but it, it has it has a definite, uh, you know, blessing side as well. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to be discussing your latest book, and uh, what a career you've been having, I must say. Uh, congratulations on this newest book, and in your bio, Thank I read you. that, that you've, uh, you've been involved in 10 books and uh, over 200 articles, yeah. so you have yeah, been very productive. I've been productive. More like 14 books, but that's all right. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. You've probably written four since you read that, uh, four more maybe I since could. you wrote, sent that uh, that bio statement. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the title of this book, and again, I want to say congratulations, is Life Enhancing Anxiety key to a sane life. But before we get into the book, I, I would like to um, talk a bit about yourself, have you talk a bit about mm. yourself. <laughs> and sometimes I have to ask dumb questions, that is, questions that I sort of know the answer to, but I want to get them out, the information out there for the audience, and so that's a way to do that. So... Before we get into the book, you describe yourself as an existential humanistic psychologist. And I think people might be wondering, well, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can give you the, the two-sentence answer, which is that I focus on how are you presently living? So there's a check-in within oneself as to one's current battle. It's usually a battle between the part of oneself that's attempting to break through and be freer in life in some uh -huh. way. That's for a relationship, a project, uh, employment of some kind. And the part of oneself that, that blocks that, that, that yearning to break through. So, yeah. so that's the first question. How are you presently living? And then naturally following from that is how are you willing to live? So as you explore more about that battle and see closer and closer up, how you're, you're constructing your world, so to speak. Yeah. Um, there's an impetus, uh, ideally a growing impetus to 
break on through, as the doors would say, you know, uh -huh. to the other side. Yeah. Uh, to to break through those areas that have been blocking you because you're you're getting that feedback continuously through the therapy and through the therapist as a kind of mirror, both passive and active mirror as to where you're at. And hopefully you're getting it to the point where you develop what Otto Rock would call a counter will to overcome those blocks because you're basically you're sick and tired of living in a prison. Hmm. And so you, you break through and that's what helps many people to pursue what is more meaningful to them and also what I would call a sense of awe often toward living. And yeah. by that I mean a sense of humility and wonder or sense of adventure toward living, a kind of inner freedom to have access to one's thoughts, feelings, body sensations, imaginings, one's vulnerability, as well as one's boldness to venture out and take risks. Well, that's, so that's a great answer. That, that's a very full <laughs> yeah. two-sentence answer. <laughs> and, it, it, it could take anywhere <coughs> from six weeks to, to five years or more. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, I got to take a sip of liquid here. I'm getting into sure. my coughing zone. So what's the story behind this latest book of yours? Why this book, why this particular book at this particular moment in time? Well, I feel like it's the culmination of a lot of my work uh, from The Paradoxical Self, which was my first book, which drew a lot from Rollo May and in particular Ernest Becker's work in Denial of Death. Uh, how we deal with contrasts and contradictions in our lives, uh, right through to the polarized mind, to the depolarizing of America, which is a way of addressing the way we can become extreme and fixated yeah. on single points of view. Um, and it just felt like the, the right time to bring this out. It's a very personal book as well as professional um, and it's based on both worlds of experience maybe it had something to do with the passing of my mother a couple of years ago uh -huh. as well no longer have parents alive uh, and it kind of called me back to some early struggles that i had as a child and and those are very much uh highlighted in the book actually yeah they are journey with they, they, they really are i have to i have to <coughs> i i have to say that i must be a psychologist because i i'm drawn to <laughs> to those that's that's i always look for that in a in a book and uh, in a therapy yeah. book and uh, as a consequence I discovered the, in the appendix first, I saw this highlight oh, no. of, a, of a, I didn't realize it was going to also be discussed in the text as deeply as it was. I was glad that, to discover it there. But you, in the appendix, I found this <coughs> report from a um, psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, did you say? Psychoanalyst, yeah. Had a psychoanalyst, a psychoanalyst when you were six years old. Yeah. <coughs> I have to say the idea of six-year-olds going to psychoanalysis, that sounds like a story in and of itself. Yes. And because I hadn't gotten to, to the rest of the book yet, I, I wondered... Well, why did he put this in here? This seems very personally revealing. And um, yeah. so I'll give you a chance to speak to that. Well, I, it's a book about anxiety. And I felt it was really important for me to begin with my own journey mm -hmm. with anxiety. I, I feel like I know it very, very intimately. 
because I lived it. Yeah. And hopefully, well, I, I do feel that that helped me a great deal to be a supporter of others who are, are going through similar journeys. But uh, yeah, I think it, it, really, it really inspires yeah. a person to, uh, it inspires the reader because you've, you have blazed the trail in terms of setting an example of taking a risk, of taking a, a very a very big personal risk. In a way, many people would shy away from the idea of, wait a second, I can't put this in there that I that I needed psychoanalysis at six years of age, well, <laughs> and, and yet we go yeah. on to learn. Yeah. that indeed you did and and that there was a good reason for uh, I'm sure more than one but uh, mm -hmm. you, sadly you had a, a brother who died at two and a half years of age and so, well, he was seven <coughs> oh, I don't know how I got that wrong okay no, he at was seven. seven I was two and a half yeah oh that's that's the person who I knew somebody was two and a half yeah right so that's a, that's a big pill to swallow when you're two and a half years of age. It's got to be <coughs> totally mystifying. I may have to turn the mic will. off here in a bit just to, um, to, to, to mute my mic off and on. So it looks like I'm going to have some coughing going on. But also, um, you, you go into uh, the struggles that you had with your parents and uh, mm -hmm. just other other things that happened in your young life really quickly that you had to make sense of. I'll let you talk about that and I'll go mute for a bit here. Well, I mean, basically I was attempting to reveal that somebody could come from namely the author, could come from a very disturbed place. And over time, and with, with appropriate support, uh, was able to see the world in a, in a quite different way. Basically, after my brother died, I went into a tailspin. And I mean, as you can might imagine, my parents, especially my mother, was uh, extremely distraught and shattered, and it was very difficult for her to be present to me in a way that uh, I, I I know she wanted to be, um, and she had to opt out for periods of time. Uh, yeah, really, it, she, she, she must have, it must have been an emotional abandonment for you because she, she couldn't I, I be present. Was, yeah. 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 I mean, emotionally and even physically for periods yeah. of time, she, she, she had to get away. And yeah, I mean, I think that was certainly part of my tailspin. Also, just the trusting, trusting her, trusting my father, trusting the world. Uh, you know, the fear, terrors of death, of, of germs, uh, illness. I was just surrounded with that. And so I was a terrified little kid. Yeah. And I, I wasn't getting much better. Uh my father even took notes on me. My father was a humanistic educator. He, he was a school teacher at that time, math and science, but he became a professor of education not too long after. And he was very tuned in to, to kids. Um, but they had very different philosophies. Uh, she was more cautious with me. He was more encouraging of me acting out my feelings and and going to movies, some, some of which were quite scary, involved witches, which became part of my my uh, terror terrain. And, and yeah. also got connected with my mother as well. But in, in any case, uh, I, I basically, my, my dad was very tuned in 
from a certain standpoint of psychology, um, and, and so was my mother. Uh, she, she was a pioneer in her own right. She was a television and radio spokesperson. And uh, so really a pioneering woman in the late 50s, early 60s. And, and she was seeing an analyst herself. Uh -huh. And so uh, she asked that analyst to refer a child analyst to me. And that's how I met my analyst, Dr. Schiff, uh, when I was about six years old. Yeah, yeah. And that was a, a, a pivotal time for me. I Basically moving from a place of, of extreme terror and, and even a kind of paralysis, uh, felt like I, I was losing it in a lot of ways, to gradual uh, intrigue and and even curiosity about my situation. He helped to support questions about my situation and to open up to more possibilities of, of living. Uh, and uh, eventually, I think, uh, a place of even being able to connect with my passion about life and, and interest yeah. in the unusual, especially science yeah. fiction, was something I really got turned on to. One of, one of the things yeah. that struck me was uh, there was part of what was going on for you, uh, at least in the initial part of that, was uh, a lot of concern about death, uh, fear of death. And yes. and I can't help but notice, you know, that your career, in fact, a big part of what's contained in the idea of being an existential psychologist or psychotherapist is uh, death is front, front and center and, and kind of an yes. insistence that it be front and center. Yes. So I'm sure you've reflected on that. It seems like there's a way in which it's come full circle. There's no question about it. And I'm sure it, it also drove me to to write a lot and to, to be as you know, creative or productive as I, I could be, partly because I'm realizing the fragility of life. Uh, but yeah, existentialism was a really compatible field for me when I discovered Maurice Friedman's The Worlds of Existentialism, I think in high school, mm. uh, which contains a lot of little writings, wonderful writings from different theorists, including a mentor who we share, uh, Rollo May and eventually James Bugenthal. Uh, but I, 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 would I would say it's not just death in the conventional sense of physical ending. It's more what Becker describes in Denial of Death, uh, the complex symbol of death. It's a complex symbol of because it's it's not just about a physical finality. I, I see it more and more as the sense of groundlessness and helplessness that is part of the human condition that I, as well as others, sometimes are were, was exposed to at a much too early age. Yeah, yeah. And so it was that ripping open to this helplessness and groundlessness that is really us in so many ways, much too quickly and intensely. But on the other side of that, and because I got that pivotal help from the analyst and later an existential analyst I worked with in graduate school, who's also mentioned very much in the book, uh, I, I was able to see that groundlessness and helplessness uh, as also uh, new possibilities um, because it's like all bets are off, right? Uh -huh. When you're in that free pool, yeah. uh, in that suspense, you, you can also realize, well, there's a great deal of freedom there or potential to explore and, and some very interesting things about that and maybe even amazing things about... Well, in a sense, what have you that, got to lose, yeah. right? What that's, have you got to lose? You might as well do the brave thing. That, that's that's a way of putting it. But but also uh, that that you 
you you potentially have a great deal of to lose if you don't tap in. Uh-huh. Also, yeah. If you don't seize the moment now to take that risk, uh-huh. to, whether it's with your therapist, uh, you know, or in in a close relationship. I mean, certainly my mother and I worked through an awful lot, and and and, and my father as well uh, over time. Uh, but it's it's a potential opening as well as a closing. Uh, if one can stay present, more fully present to the turmoil, to the disruption, because it's breaking out of the usual box that we live in, right? I mean, so yeah. quickly, as we're born, we're covered over often with rules and regulations and all kinds of cultural things to uh, re- restrict our uh, capacity to see some of these deeper anxieties, like you know our fragility, possibility of death, that sense of groundlessness. So, yeah, to break out of that can can enable one to be more creative, uh, to be maybe more sensitive about what's going on for oneself and others. Uh, I mean, I I hope and I feel that these qualities did manifest for me eventually. It took a long time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and some really scary moments. You mentioned awe earlier, and, uh, and there's a section in the book where you titled uh, From Terror to Awe. And that sounds like... Yes. Uh, Quite a quite a leap. So talk talk to us about how you get from terror to awe, and and what are the skills that you can develop in terms of uh, learning to uh, to be awestruck. Well, the conventional definition of awe is a a combination of of dread, veneration, and wonder. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, awe is one of the few transcendental terms, in in my knowledge, that uh, directly faces the paradoxes of the human situation. You know, our our most, our deepest dreads, as well as our most dazzling desires, in a sense, our smallness, you know, our tininess before the vastness of creation and our capacity to venture out into it, to create, to participate in something much greater than ourselves. Um, so I, I find it, I feel it's a beautiful description of what one can attain if one can acknowledge the fragility the the apprehension and even the terror of being human at times, but not stop there. And that's what good depth therapy does, I believe, especially yeah. experiential depth. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to it hear you to... bring in depth therapy because this definitely yeah. is in that domain in a big way. Yeah, it helps people to, to acknowledge that that vulnerable part of themselves so they can be more present in a, in a whole body way, not just intellectually or behaviorally in terms of, you know, changing themselves, but uh, with one's whole body experience to, to, to have, to develop the inner freedom to connect with all parts of oneself or as many parts as possible. And that includes sometimes the very unsettling, maybe even the terrifying, that that's a part of life and that can be a very deepening part of life, but that's not all of life. So it it includes the anxious, the traditionally anxious part, but also the part that uh, signals us toward growth because anxiety can also be a signal 
of being on the edge of something, the edge of discovery, the edge of wonder yeah. and possibility. And you know, somewhat, par par somewhat paradoxically, on the face of it, um, some of the people who are talking most about awe these days are in the camp of positive psychology. And so I wanted to, and, and you refer to positive, uh, to, to some take on, and I wanted to ask you, what's your take on positive psychology? Well, I think positive psychology is very helpful as far as it goes. The problem is that it's it's been seen as a sort of be-all and end-all, like cognitive behavioral therapy, in too many parts of our field. And I think with too many consumers, unfortunately. And as a result, they become shortchanged of the deeper journey that they could take and that could really be more deeply gratifying in many cases and more healing for them in the longer term. Um, I don't think, at least for me and for many people who are deeply uh, impacted by fears or traumas in life, that, you know, reframing one's thoughts or uh, changing statements we make in our mind toward the positive uh, is is enough. Um, mm -hmm. It it needs to go beyond words and and categories, um, and that's why the experiential is so important. I think basically that we need to be met at a much deeper level and held. That idea of the holding environment that Winnicott brings up, very, very important from, from birth, actually. Um, so it's a more, again, a whole body sense that one is okay to feel the fuller ranges of, of one's thoughts, feelings, sensations, imaginings, and thereby able to have more access to all those places to uh, to live a more engaged, uh, a more full life in many cases. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but it's for many more people than, than are being uh, cited yeah. often in, in mainstream literature. You know, speaking uh, of... Speaking of paradoxical, um, the title of your book might strike one as paradoxical, Enhance, Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane yeah. Life. I mean, the... Same world. The, yeah, the, the impression... Uh, is, is it a sane world? Did I get the title wrong, too? Yeah, Key to a Sane World. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It'd be a um, one's life. Yeah. Um, I think the impression that people have of therapy is that the job of the therapist is to decrease one's anxiety. So tell us about life-enhancing anxiety. Well, well, to some degree, this is, this is an homage to uh, my great mentor and friend, Rollo May, who wrote The Meaning of Anxiety in 1950. That was his dissertation. And he was drawn from Kierkegaard uh, in terms of seeing anxiety as a much fuller concept than we generally approached it, especially in our highly technical and industrialized world where we try to do everything we can to eliminate anxiety. Yeah. You know, we have smartphones and we have our sort of instant ways of communicating uh, and they're often through uh, you know, mechanical devices, which we're doing now, but hopefully, you know, we're, we're also stirring up some yeah. trans mechanical so. yeah. ideas. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, basically it's, it's a way of addressing the, the, the limitations of, of the quick fix instant result world that, that we live in and through ideology as well, uh, in many areas. 
uh, addictions. Uh, we, we, mm -hmm. we are so driven toward the instant answer with a capital A. Yeah. And so Rallo was emphasizing, and he emphasized in the interview we did with him too, it's in psychotherapy.net, um, that he, he says, you know, I, I don't try to eliminate anxiety. I try to put more anxiety in the relationship uh -huh. <laughs> unless the patient is so fragile that they, they'll be overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, but that's part of the point. I, and I was trying to highlight that for, for, sort of, for a new generation, a new time, where I think perhaps we need to recognize that those elements of wonder and discovery in anxiety, not just dread and paralysis. We're, we're missing those elements yeah, yeah. much too much. And so, yes, it is very paradoxical, um, but it's yep. it's trying to bring anxiety out to its fuller dimensions. And 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 I think that that, that could be healing and bridge building, yeah. uh, not only within the self, but between people. Yeah, and I think you know, I think many people, uh, and particularly maybe maybe many young people, are feeling uh, a hunger for something deeper, for something more, uh, for some meaning in in their life that the our culture in general doesn't seem to offer or champion. No, I I, I very much agree. Uh, that's. That's maybe one of our biggest problems in, in our culture that, that has led to so much um, extremism, uh, polarization, as I would call it, you know, fixation on single points of view to the utter exclusion of competing points of view, because we're so desperate for answers, again, whether that's in uh, often, often enough extremist leaders in our society and living vicariously through them or it's in the drug or it's in the uh you know the ideology uh or or just the device that we use y yes and and so yeah. it, it raises the question of how how fully we're really tapping in to our capacity to take stock of our lives more, uh, to, to look at what deeply matters about our lives, to be more creative, perhaps, with our lives, uh -huh. our careers, our relationships. Yeah. You speak about spirituality, and, uh, and you talk about something you refer to as enchanted agnosticism <laughs> i love that yes, expression yes. so tell, tell us Thank about you. that well i was trying to find a phrase that would capture uh, again it's the polarities I, you're you're always reaching for right that's that's true and also a non-dogmatic uh, position toward spirituality and religion um, yeah, that holds the paradoxes of us being vulnerable, you know, uncertain creatures at the same time connecting with, participating in something much greater than ourselves. And, and how do we negotiate that uh, beyond, let's say, our usual relationships and work lives to the spiritual life and seemed to me it's it's a lot about taking mystery seriously and that's that's basically what enchanted agnosticism is about it's about um not just seeing the mysterious as the unverifiable as some scientists would say <laughs> that is yet to be calculated and controlled but as something much closer to what the great religions uh espouse uh, at their highest, in my view, which is that we are participating in something radically unknown. And it's radically amazing and that we have this, this flicker of a, a moment to live it and to deal with it. 
And so can we can we open to that? Can yeah. we feel like we're participating in something much greater than ourselves? And so that brings a kind of enchantment as well as a being with the unknowing, you know. Uh, and I believe it, it it lifts, at least it lifts me out of the narrow and, and petty, often narrow and petty identifications that I and others get into, which yeah. often have a lot to do with uh, you know, critical judgments and devaluations of ourselves, which is a waste of energy in so many yeah. cases. You know, you you spoke about the political polarization, and I think you've even written a, one of your books is largely about that, oh, yeah. right? Polarized mind. Yeah, and um, where do you come out on that? How do you resolve that? I mean, it seems like we're at such a impasse right now, well, culturally and globally. Yeah. Well, we are, and. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, too, uh, is I was trying to highlight the idea that some discomfort is necessary, not only within the self to uh, achieve greater inner freedom and, and more presence to more possibilities in the self, but also between peoples and cultures and races. And so that's something I've been very involved in of late. Uh, I, I was a trained moderator for Braver Angels, which is a grassroots uh, organization that brings self-identified liberals and conservatives together for uh -huh. living room style conversations. But it's highly, highly structured and highly supportive. What, what's the status of that? I've not heard about that that movement or organization oh whichever it's still it going on i think they have more than ten thousand. yeah they have more than ten thousand members they're in all 50 states um braverangels.org i think is their website um these are all volunteers it was started by bill doherty who's a minnesota university of minnesota psychologist who began with uh, family therapy and couples work uh -huh. and humanistic psychology and he brought a lot of these principles to bear. Uh, but from there, I developed, well, not just from there, I, I actually developed what I call the experiential democracy dialogue way, way before Very Braver Angels. I developed that back when we invaded Iraq because I, I felt that great tension between yeah. worldviews in our country at that point. And I felt like there was, we had so many riches in depth psychology to bring to bear to potentially healing conversations. So uh, Brave Angels helped, uh, uh, helped me to develop experiential democracy dialogue more. And I, I've been conducting webinars, facilitating uh, experiential democracy dialogue, which is a six phase model one, that's one-on-one, -on -one. so it's it's a little bit more intimate than the Braver Angels format, which tends to be more group-oriented. They do have a one-on-one, -on -one, but it's still a little bit more group-oriented. And the Experiential Democracy Dialogue is also more intimate in that uh, I, I try to help people to cultivate some degree of presence to themselves and to the other person, even before starting the dialogues through visualizations telling about their backgrounds yeah yeah that's it yeah i think that's that's really wonderful work and fascinating i didn't know about that and um oh. I, i'm glad to hear that you are that you've been wrestling with how to be an activist of some sort to to bring these yeah. ideas as, which can seem kind of rarefied i'm sure to many people very abstract and airy fairy and how to bring it down yeah. into actual uh political change hopefully yeah well that's 
been a lot of of uh, what my the second half of my life's been about. Yeah, is really trying to translate these principles into yeah. action. Yeah, social action and some individual as well. But yeah, basically, it's about uh, supporting people to uh, have less comfortable, but potentially uh, much more rewarding conversations with each other and much more healing conversations as they're able to stay with the discomforts and the, the, the reactivities that they come to these conversations with. I mean, a lot of it is about humanizing the conversation through the phases, helping people identify their stereotypes toward each other, their, their knee-jerk reactions toward each other, and then getting to the, the deeper, more curiosity-based uh, engagement with each other, coming from a place of genuine curiosity rather yeah. than... You know, stereotype, imposition, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Which means staying with a degree of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, it can be very anxiety arousing to even consider going in, into that sort of dialogue. Well, and that's why we emphasize highly structured mm -hmm. uh, and supportive conversations. So the, the, the mediator really needs to be on top of the the two to two partners to stay within the guardrails the ground rules yeah of, of the guardrails and the guardrails and and uh, ground rules apply equally <laughs> i think they, they they definitely do and they yeah. help to create a sense of safety as we all know in, in depth psychotherapy yeah you can't go around accusing people of things or yelling at them and expect that you're going to have a that's convers right. conversation that's potentially healing. Yeah. And we do find, I should say, that many people do shift through these kinds of conversations. Braver Angels has done interesting research on this where they've shown that people feel less angry, less estranged from each other afterward. Um, and they feel more understood by the other, and uh, and and they feel like there's more potential for common ground. Yeah, Even if that you know, common I, ground is just being friendly. <laughs> yeah, I I think that uh, Carl Rogers was reaching for that, and some of the work that he did later in his life, right, of going into uh, conflict areas and trying to get people to to dialogue with one another. He was a great model and, and inspiration for me. He was less directive in his uh, in his model, which I'm, I'm sure was effective in its own right. Um, I would say that both experiential democracy dialogue and braver angels approach is more more structured in mm -hmm. terms of going through phases. Yeah, I Whereas personally, Rogers, I, I, I think, think in I keeping think with his philosophy, that makes sense to me that that, that would be the case. The yeah. uh, I would feel more comfortable with that structure. <laughs> Something about my personality, yeah. I guess. So yeah. your book's coming out th this week, I believe, right? No, no, no. It actually came out February one. Oh. And that's it it pretty did, weird. That's a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. 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 So Just, what is your hope for the book? Well, I, I hope to reach just everyday people as much as possible who are concerned about uh, their, their own conflicts, uh, their own uh, engagement with life at this uh -huh. point. That perhaps they, they, lack a sense of purpose and meaning or att enough attention to what deeply matters about their lives and that they can see some value in this, see some value from my own journey that I go into detail about, yeah. uh, as you mentioned, uh, and others' others' journeys. Um, and I hope to, to reach, uh, you know, political leaders, uh, social leaders as much as possible as well. Mm -hmm. 
to persuade them to get involved in more of these supportive structure dialogues yeah. with people in contrasting backgrounds, ethnicities, et cetera, to be models to people yeah. of, of uh, a more healing direction and, and also a direction that, that uh, expands us and deepens us as people by by being able to hold the anxieties that come up around tough issues. I mean, part of my point in this book is it, we, we, we have so much anxiety in our world precisely because we're not facing the deeper and more important anxieties often, uh, you know, earlier on. And I think yeah. that's true individually and as well as culturally. Yeah. And so as a result, we, we've we've got all kinds of anxieties because um, we we live often a fear-driven existence, which leads to all kinds of destructiveness, which leads to more anxiety. So I'm talking about nipping it in the bud as early <laughs> and fundamentally as yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. So I know that you've been very active in the American Psychological Association. In fact, you've... Uh, yeah. You've run for president, I believe, two or three times, and sure. um, and and I noticed that you are a member of uh, many divisions. <laughs> of, yeah. You know, sure. there are all these different divisions of, and um, so, and I guess you know part of your your mission here is to try to move this organization. Yes to put your shoulder to that <laughs> and uh, how, how's that That's, going <laughs> <laughs> right uh, intensively <laughs> it's, it's quite, um, well I feel like we we were able to get the word out to a great extent about Or existentially depth-oriented perspectives on living, and so that's been a plus for me, and that that really is is the the core uh, of uh, a lot of you know my expenditure of energy on on running. Yeah, is being yeah. able to talk to many different constituencies about these ideas. Uh, I think I think uh, they are filtering these ideas are filtering in. Um, I, I see that uh, like the current president is very tuned in. Uh, her name is Tama Bryant Davis. Very tuned in to the arts, to uh, expressive arts, uh -huh. uh, to to dialogue certainly, cross cultural dialogue. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, I, I also focused on the idea of uh, rallying our profession and mental health professions in general to develop a national core of mental health professionals or of psychologists to spread throughout the country and be available to much more accessible and affordable mm -hmm. in yeah. depth and potentially longer term mental health care, or what I call yeah. emotionally restorative relationships. Because I yeah. think the lack of emotionally restorative relationships is one of the key problems that many of us have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, parents are extremely distracted. Um, you know, we're caught up oh. in our devices. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's really hard for youth, I think. It, to, it pains to me to have the kinds of relationships that you and I have. Yeah, it pains me to, to, I'm sorry. to see in a mall... Uh, parents who are, you know, who are so locked into their device, into their phone. It's so addictive, and and they're missing these opportunities with their children, and, and their children are just being sucked along in the same depersonalized, contactless way. With, yeah, and add to that the. Degree of poverty uh, and and uh, racism that many parents feel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we have been uh, out of touch uh, with, you, with you got one a lot another. Of uh, I'm I'm wanted to speaking of children. Uh, do you have kids? Yes, I guess I have a son. Uh, oh. Actually, I'm I'm actually broadcasting from his his room. Oh, right really? Now. Yeah. How how old is he? Uh, he'll be 28 in March. Okay, an adult yeah. son. Yeah, yeah. So that's a big change in your life. That uh, that's that's totally new to me. That's right. You knew me as a, a lowly intern. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, I think, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, as we wrap things up here? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, I think. Uh, just, uh, I, I guess that my hope is that the, the book can reach a larger audience than just an academic audience, because it it has so many personal aspects to it. Yeah, it really. And does. I th I think it's I think it'll speak to people, uh, especially people who are wrestling with with anxiety uh, and, and depression uh, and and various maladies that so many of us are in, in today's world. Uh, that that one can. Uh, especially if one seeks, you know, substantive support, one can transform. Yeah. That's, that's really important. You don't have to be stuck in those narrow places. Right. Um, is there a way that people can be in touch with you? Uh, or do you have a website out there that, uh, that you'd yeah. like to let people know about? Yes, people can contact me through my website. Uh, it's kirkjschneider.com. Okay. And that has a lot of information, uh, not only about the book, but about basically all my books and, and articles, videos that may be of interest. Um, and I have a lot of podcasts and videos on uh, YouTube if people are interested in uh, and existential psychology and life enhancing anxiety and um, all the sense of awe toward living. Wonderful, wonderful. So I will direct people to those places. And uh, so Dr. Kirk Schneider, I really want to thank you for meeting with me today in this very personal, non-personal way. <laughs> Hopefully it's felt personal to you as yeah. It did. It did. And I really appreciate you providing the time for me to convey these ideas. I was particularly pleased to have the opportunity to interview Kirk Schneider, PhD, again for several reasons. One is that Kirk, who is the preeminent humanistic existential therapist, is an old friend. In fact, we first met in the early 70s through one of the founding fathers of the humanistic existentialist approach, James F.T. Bugenthal, Ph.D. I had been powerfully impressed by several of Dr. Bugenthal's books and was delighted when he moved to the Santa Rosa, California area near me among other things, to start a therapy training institute by the name of Interlog. As things evolved, I got to know Jim, and he invited me to serve on the organization's board. Kirk Schneider was an impressive young intern there at the time. When Jim retired, he invited me to take over the organization. For a variety of reasons, I declined. After Bugenthal's death, Kirk Schneider picked up Bugenthal's mantle founding his own training institute, the Humanistic Existential Institute in San Francisco. I've not seen Kirk in some years, so it was good to catch up and to congratulate him on his latest book, Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World, and also to discover what he's been up to in the intervening years.
and also to discover what he's been up to in the intervening years. Well, he's been up to a lot. I must say, he's really lived up to his early promise as a humanistic, existential therapist, educator, leader, and pioneer. He's written 10 or more other books, as well as hundreds of professional papers. He's keynoted at a variety of international conferences, appeared on numerous podcasts, and has been active in the American Psychological Association, including running for president numerous times. Though he has not yet won that top office, he's helped move the organization to embrace more humanistic policies and ideas. In his person and in his life, he's done much to model an approach to depth therapy and depthful living on his growthful, joyful, exciting edge while ever avoiding dogmatism and embracing paradox and mystery. I think you'll get all this from the interview. These qualities really come across in the book as well. I was particularly impressed by the amount of self-disclosure in the book. In the interview, you'll hear me describe how I was grabbed by the actual report from a psychoanalyst who treated him from around two and a half years of age. Among the many precipitating traumas was the death of a six-year-old brother. I later discovered he wrote more extensively about this and other traumas further on in the book. He was riddled with the fear of death and other fears, thanks to years of therapy with exceptionally talented and supportive analysts, he came through to the other side. If all of this is not impressive enough, I was particularly struck by some of his more recent activism. I'm referring to his work with Braver Angels, who on their website extend the following invitation. Join our legion of Americans who believe that the fight to save our nation begins with a ceasefire among ourselves. We invite you to become a member of America's largest organization that brings conservatives and progressives together on equal terms to understand our differences, find common ground where it exists, and help the country we all love find a better way. Close quote. Kirk explained that he was inspired by braver angels, but wanted to create an organization with more structure. His revised approach is called the Experimental Democracy Project. A demo of this approach can be found on YouTube, and it is accompanied by the following background information. Quote, Kirk Schneider, current president of the Society for Humanistic Psychology, conceived the Experimental Democracy Project several years ago as a way to enlarge and deepen the democratic process of deliberation. Drawing from the principles of existential humanistic therapy and awe-based consciousness, the Experiential Democracy Project promotes whole-person-to-whole-person, or I-Thou dialogue, between community leaders such that a deepened understanding between parties can lead to a constructive form of social action policy. Close quote. For more information about Kirk and his work, I refer you to his website, www.kirkjschneider.com. Finally, I strongly recommend his fine book, Life Affirming Anxiety. Key to a Sane World. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Jacinda Duke in Wellington, New Zealand, and I just made my second donation this week, and it feels good. And so all of you listeners out there who haven't put your hand in your pocket yet, I strongly encourage you to so we can continue to enjoy this wonderful service that's been provided. Keep it up. Love it. Thanks. Thank you, Jacinda. They're in Wellington, New Zealand. Thanks for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my old friend, humanistic, existential therapy pioneer, Kirk Schneider, for discussing his latest book, Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World. 
I appreciate your warmth and vulnerability in both this fine book and our interview. Next week, I'll be speaking with psychoanalyst and author Leanne Domash, Ph.D., on graphic novels as a tool for psychological healing. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.